Welcome to the show, folks. In our last session, we went back in time to before the foundation of the world when there was no time. Time is a physical property that's part of the creation. We forget that. God is not bound to that now, so he certainly wasn't bound to it before he created it. But we found out that before the foundation of the world, before time, God prepared for every last detail of our redemption. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit conspired together, if I can use that word, to interject into our linear timeline everything necessary to accomplish their ultimate will concerning the redemption. They planned Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry, and ultimately his death and resurrection. But they didn't stop there. After that, the Father personally interjected into the timeline every effort, every act of drawing, every act of persuading, and leading every human being inside the timeline post-cross to accept his Son, to allow him to transfer their balance of sin debt over to the cross so that Jesus could pay for their sins. And the Father being outside time, he knew exactly how, what, why, where, and when to lead each individual to his Son. But he wouldn't violate their free will. He would do everything except that. He might extend their life in order to get the point home. He maneuvers circumstances, maneuver people. But he wouldn't violate their free will. Ultimately, it's their choice. So with each individual life inside the timeline that he led, drew, and persuaded, after all of the Father's personal efforts and interventions, he found two types of people. People whose debt was paid in full because they were in Christ, and people who remained in debt because they were in sin. They willfully rejected Christ. And it's a surprise to find out that there is no such thing as someone who's in between. There might be, from our perspective inside the timeline, but from the Father's perspective outside the timeline, when he led people to Christ, he wouldn't leave their lives alone until they had the opportunity to either accept his Son or reject his Son. He led everyone to Christ, and they either accepted him or rejected him. But of all those that he found to be in Christ, he then personally took their lives, their ultimate destiny, and he put it all into the hands of his Son. And with that, he did a lot of other things with them too, but we'll approach all of that on another occasion. But all this happened outside the linear timeline, before the foundation of the world. So now we come to a conversation that took place inside the timeline some 2,000 years ago between Jesus himself and a group of people with some Jewish religious leaders. The people who approached Jesus are the same group of people who Jesus fed the night before with just five barley loaves and two fish. That was a miracle, folks, because there were more than 5,000 people there. But when this crowd approached Jesus, he tells them, You didn't come after me because of the miracle you witnessed, but because you were fed and satisfied. Don't work for food that perishes, but instead, work for food that gives eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. They said, What work are you talking about? What work would God have us do? What are the works of God? Jesus said, This is the work of God, that you believe on him who he sent. They said, Well, what work do you perform? What sign can you show us so that we can see and believe you? Our forefathers ate manna in the desert. It's written in the book of Exodus that Moses gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said, Moses didn't give you bread out of heaven to eat. It was my father. And it's my father who's now giving you the true bread from heaven. For it's the bread of God who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Lord, give us this bread forever. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger. And he that believes on me shall never thirst. Although you've seen me, you don't believe me. But all whom the father gives to me shall come to me. And him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he has given to me, I should lose nothing, but should raise them up again at the last day. 
And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which sees the Son, who understands and comprehends who he is and what he did for them and believes on him for that, that they will have everlasting life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Then the Jewish religious leaders murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we both know? How is it then that he says, I came down from heaven? And they continued murmuring, believing that Jesus was assuming way too much of himself, claiming to have come down from heaven as though his father was more than just Joseph, but the father, the God of Abraham, and then telling people, all who come to me will never be hungry, all who come to me. So Jesus said, murmur not amongst yourselves, no man can come to me, unless the father himself, which has sent me, draws them to me, and I will raise them up again at the last day. It's written in the prophets that they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, every man that has heard and has learned of the Father comes to me. Not that any man has seen the Father, except he which is of God. He's seen the Father. I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your forefathers did eat manna in the wilderness, but they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then they strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said, I assure you, most solemnly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I dwell in him. Just as the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so is he that eats my flesh. Even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your forefathers ate and died, but he that eats of this bread shall live forever. Jesus said all of these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum, and many of his disciples, and there were lots of them by this time, folks, could have been several dozen, maybe even a hundred. But after this latest lesson from Jesus, many of them said, This is a hard saying. Who can bear to hear this? But Jesus says, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend up to heaven from where he was before? It's the spirit that quickens, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that do not believe. That's why I said earlier that no man can come to me unless he were given to me by my Father. But after this, many of his disciples went back to their former homes and careers, and they walked no more with him. Then Jesus turned and said to the twelve, Will you also go away? Then Peter answered and said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we believe and we are certain that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then Jesus said, Didn't I choose you twelve? Have not I chosen you twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. Hmm. And that's where we left off last time, folks. Now, what happened next is recorded in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20, and Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 23. Both Matthew and Mark report that a hit mob of religious leaders from Jerusalem showed up. Now, they didn't call them a hit mob. I did that. Matthew and Mark called them scribes and Pharisees. But Mark, knowing that his account was not being addressed to a Jewish audience, he gave us a little background about what they were mad about. He tells us that they saw some of Jesus' disciples eat with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all of the Jews don't eat unless they ceremonially wash their hands all the way up to their elbows with clenched fists, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
And when they come from the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. I don't think this is talking about personal hygiene, folks. It stems from that, but it became a ceremonial religious tradition. So these religious leaders came all the way from Jerusalem to raise a fuss over this. That was important, you know. How dare they eat with defiled, unclean hands? And folks, you know what's really ridiculous about this? This wasn't even commanded anywhere in the law. Now, there were some things about the priests of the temple going through ceremonial washings, but that was because they were priests of the temple and they had to do that before they entered the sanctuary. But nothing about the common Jew before they eat. But somewhere along the line, it became a religious tradition that was practiced for so long that to the scribes and Pharisees, it was the same thing as the law. Now, folks, we might shake our heads and laugh at this, but don't laugh too hard. We're not all that better today. Because the church is about 2,000 years old today, so is our Bible. And that's how old the Mosaic Law was in Jesus' day. Just like the Pharisees, we also have had plenty of time to turn biblical truth, biblical principles into exaggerated, man-made traditions. A lot of the ceremonial traditions in the church today have no biblical basis whatsoever, but you'd never know that from the way those traditions are vigorously promoted and blindly practiced. And the brave few who dare to challenge it are usually given all kinds of hell from religious leaders and even fellow Christians. And out of love, when you try to show them that those traditions are not biblically founded, they become just as angry and just as indignant as these Pharisees are about to get. And don't misunderstand me. There may not be anything wrong with the traditions that are held, just like there's nothing wrong with washing your hands up to your elbows before you eat. But to take that and then make it a religious tradition and then make everybody feel like it's something they must do in order to solidify their faith and please God, as though God himself ordained it and commanded it. Folks, putting words in God's mouth is very dangerous. Misrepresenting God, claiming that he said something that he never said, claiming that he feels a certain way about something that he doesn't feel, that he never claimed that he felt, that's dangerous. God represents himself to us through his word. So with any tradition, if Jesus said it and the scriptures say it, then it's of God. But if Jesus never said it and the scriptures never said it, then it's man-made. And if it's man-made, it might be a good tradition, but don't let modern-day Pharisees beat you over the head with some religious guilt. There's plenty of them around today. When we start studying all of Paul's church letters in the New Testament, we'll get into a lot of those modern-day religious traditions and we'll attempt to decipher what's biblically endorsed versus what's purely man-made. And I think when we get into all of that, you'll be surprised just how much of what goes on today is purely man-made tradition. Certainly surprised me. And in just a minute here, Jesus is going to show us why that's a bad thing. Whether we mean to or not, they always eventually wind up replacing what God really wants. He's interested in our lives, folks. That's a moment-by-moment, 24-hour-a-day thing. When we devote ourselves to God and His Word, then it shows in our moment-by-moment lives. But when we devote ourselves to tradition and ceremony, our lives eventually become no different than everyone else in the world, with the minor exception that we practice some ceremonial tradition. So anyway, back to Matthew and Mark. Both Matthew and Mark report the same thing from this point onward, but the order of the dialogue is recorded differently. It's all there in both accounts, but the order is different. Since Matthew was the stenographer, we're going to use his account for the order, but combine it with Mark's to get all the subtle nuances of the conversation. It says, Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? 
for they don't wash their hands when they eat. Jesus answered. <laughs> I just, I can't imagine somebody approaching the Son of God to, <laughs> to complain about something like that. But anyway, they did. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your tradition. Ooh, Jesus went straight for the jugular, folks. And now he's going to give them an example of what he's talking about. How do they break the commandment of God for the sake of their tradition? Well, he's going to quote one of the Old Testament commandments. And then he's going to compare it to one of their modern day traditions to point out how that tradition actually cancels out the law. But I want to take this slowly because there's a couple of confusing things to our modern day ears that Jesus is fixing to say. So let's take this very slowly, one verse at a time. Let's look at it. He says, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother. And whoever curses his father or mother must surely die. And there it is. There's the original commandment. We've all heard that one before. But if you're like me, I bet you were shocked to see that anyone who cursed their mother or their father were given the death penalty. I mean, that, <laughs> that's pretty strict. A couple of things I want to point out that we need to understand God's view of sin is much more extreme than our view of sin for two reasons. One is that God is perfect in his justice. He's not extreme, he's perfect. And it's not because he chooses to be, it's because he is. It's his nature. Second of all, God's view of sin is only extreme when you compare his view to our view. But our view is the view that's biased, not God's. See, God is outside the sin loop. So he's really the only one in existence who can see sin for what it really is. We're inside the sin loop, so we tend to get some rough idea of what it is, but not really. We sort of make jokes about it and wink at it. We know sin is somehow relative to being naughty. But we don't take it too seriously unless it's some really big sin like murder or rape. But that's only because all of us tend to agree that murder and rape is bad. It's not because God said anything to us about it. When it comes to everything else, it's all relative. Our view of sin is distorted by sin itself. For one of us to get an accurate view of what sin really is would be equivalent to trying to find an accurate view of what insanity is from a nut inside a nut house. Because to them, sanity and insanity is relative. It all depends on your point of view. But to us who are sane on the outside, it's very clear what insanity is. Insanity means Norman Bates, Michael Myers, Charles Manson, Ed Gain, Ted Bundy. You see what I'm saying? To have an accurate view of insanity, you have to be sane. Well, to get an accurate view of sin, you have to be sinless, which none of us are. When it comes to the nature of what sin really is, the only one seeing it accurately is God, because he's completely holy, completely perfect, and on the outside of the sin loop, seeing all of reality for what it really is. We can't, because we're on the inside. So in order for God to communicate to us what sin really is, he has to let us know through the penalties in the old law. You may not see it in Exodus, but later in Leviticus, the Ten Commandments were thoroughly amplified with various examples paired up with their given penalties. And when it got to the commandment of honoring your father and mother, it specifically laid out, just like it did for all the other commandments, several different examples of how a person could break that commandment. And one of the examples for dishonoring your father and mother was cursing your father and mother. And the penalty for that example was death. That might shock us as New Testament readers, but God has always been very serious about communicating to us what sin really is. We tend to think that God is more forgiving now and that he chooses to ignore it, but he doesn't. 
That's why we need the cross, folks. The soul that sins, it shall die. That's in Ezekiel. That's a promise from God himself in the Old Testament. That's why we want to be in Christ, so that the death penalty for our sin has already been paid. Man, talk about things transpiring outside the time domain. Good grief. Every time we sin, we increase the amount of debt that Jesus had to pay for at the cross. From Jesus' perspective right now, it's all over. It was paid in full 2,000 years ago. But what he paid in full, from our perspective, is still growing, isn't it? The more we sin, the more Jesus had to pay for. But anyway, I'm getting off track. The point is, God didn't ignore sin in the old law, nor does he ignore it now. We're lucky, because in our case, somebody else is paying for it. But it's still being paid for. And to say that God was too extreme about sin is a biased statement. It can't be backed up by any experience because we don't know the full scope of what each individual sin does. When God gave Israel the Ten Commandments and declared the penalties for each sin, he wasn't declaring penalties that fit each sin. See, that's the way we do our justice system. But he was declaring penalties that would keep the sin from being committed to begin with. Look at it from the perspective of a parent. What if you came upon your three-year-old boy walking just a few inches away from something that would kill him? like a bear trap. Would you calmly and softly ask him to come toward you with maybe a kind little warning? Or would you scream and shout and wave your arms and threaten life and limb to get him out of there? Well, you'd probably scream and shout and threaten life and limb. Now, what you threaten might not be an appropriate punishment for your son's disobedience, but it just might save him from being crushed in a bear trap, right? Now, I'm not suggesting we bring back the death penalty for unruly kids. But I'm just trying to point out that God's the only one who can see sin for what it really is, folks. And when the penalty was death, it was for a good reason. Now, where it assigns the death penalty to anyone who curses his father or mother, there is a possibility. I don't know this for certain, but there is a good possibility that this is not talking about verbally cussing them out or saying something in rebellion. I think it's talking about the willful act of declaring a curse, which was a form of witchcraft. Because if you peruse the Old Testament law, everything related to witchcraft was punishable by death because it's extremely dangerous. That's what's so unfortunate for those today who get into the occult. What they don't realize until it's too late is that Satan's forces are not under their control in spite of what all the books and teachers of the occult tell them. Satan's forces are infamous for using the old bait-and-switch technique. You might think you're in control at first, but those forces are out to cause everybody harm not just those whom you curse. And it's serious harm, not just bumps and bruises, but devastating psychological and emotional harassment. In the old law, paying a visit to a fortune teller was punishable by death. Why? Is it because they're all a bunch of fakes trying to steal your money? Most of them probably are, but I don't think that's why God gave it the death penalty. There's more to it than that. Whether they're fake or not doesn't matter. The fact is, they're entries for demonic activity. Many years ago, I once knew a girl who regularly visited a psychic, which is the modern-day equivalent to a fortune teller, and she got a lot of comfort out of those regular visits, but meanwhile, several life-changing events started happening in her life. Her kids started misbehaving even more than usual. She had started to experience bouts of serious depression. Tension in the house started to increase. Her and her husband eventually started having heated arguments about absolutely nothing that resulted in broken furniture. A few days later, her husband lost his job for reasons they didn't see coming. 
And then one night at two o'clock in the morning, a drunk driver drove his pickup truck right through the middle of her living room. A few days after that, her two-year-old daughter was brutally raped by a man they all trusted. It was her husband's brother. And all of this happened within the span of one month. And after each tragedy, she'd run back to her psychic to be comforted, only to bring home with her more demons to invite more hell. No wonder God declared the death penalty to anyone consorting with fortune tellers. If you want to get an accurate view of how harmful a particular sin is, go back to the Old Testament and see which form of punishment God gave it. The supernatural dangers involved might possibly be an explanation for why God gave the death penalty to the sin of cursing your father and mother. But I only mention that as a possibility. The point is, Jesus brings it up as an example of how seriously God treats his commandments, one of them being, honor your father and mother. And God takes that so seriously that he proclaimed the death penalty to be given to those who curse their mother or father. And then Jesus compares that commandment to one of the Pharisees' modern-day traditions to point out how their tradition is not only wrong, but actually cancels out the old law. Jesus tells them, God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever curses his father or mother must surely die. But you say, a man doesn't need to honor his father and mother if he tells them what you would have gained from me, it is Corban, a gift to God. Now to explain what that tradition is all about, folks, it turns out that among their religious traditions was something that they had come up with called Corban. What Corban was, was sort of a traditional excuse that was used to avoid other obligations, but it was done very professionally. The Pharisees were always encouraging the Jews to give money or food to the temple. And one of the things they did to encourage that was that they came up with this idea of Corban. If you had a financial obligation, whatever it was, you could claim Corban to get out of it, but only if you had given money to the temple. And believe it or not, one of the obligations Corbin could write off were obligations toward your parents. If you were a grown adult and your mother or father came to you for support of any kind, you could tell them that what they needed from you had already been given to the temple. That what they needed from you was Corbin. Of course, if you hadn't given anything to the temple, that would have been a lie. So the tradition of Corbin promoted the idea of giving to the temple so that you could say that and it not be a lie. Give to the temple so you can tell your parents what you would have gained from me has already been given to the Lord. So that's why Jesus is indignant with these Pharisees. How dare they come all the way from Jerusalem to gripe about his disciples not washing their hands when they're telling people they don't have to help out their parents when they need help if they've been giving to the temple. Now, folks, once again, we can sit here in the year 2010 and shake our heads at these Pharisees, but we're no better. Not by a long shot. I've heard sermons about tithing and giving money to the church that actually rivals the jive that we're getting here from these Pharisees. So after Jesus was griped at for not adhering to the tradition of hand washing, he gives them an example of how serious God takes his commandments and then compares that to an example of how casual the Pharisees are with the commandments in spite of their protests. Jesus answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever curses his father or mother must surely die. But you say, a man doesn't need to honor his father or mother if he tells them what you would have gained from me, it is Corban, a gift to God. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You pretenders, you hypocrites. Truly and excellently did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people draw near to me with their mouths and they honor me with their lips. But with their hearts, they hold off and they are distant from me. 
uselessly, and in vain do they worship me, for they order obedience, teaching the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God, and you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your traditions. Then Jesus called the people to him and said, Listen to me, all of you, and understand what I say. Okay, folks, right here, since the public's perception of what's clean and unclean has been twisted by tradition for so long, Jesus is going to publicly countermand that twisted tradition and explain why. He says, listen to me, all of you, and understand what I say. There is not one thing outside of a man which by going into him can pollute him. It's not what goes into the mouth of a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of the mouth. The things which come out of a man are what defile him and make him unclean. If any man has ears to hear, let him be listening and let him perceive and comprehend. And when he had left the crowd and had gone into the house, his disciples said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended and indignant with what you said? Jesus answered, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be torn up by the roots. Let them alone and disregard them. They are blind guides and blind teachers. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into the ditch. Wow, what a speech, folks. We can learn a lot from that because all of us today who study the Bible, we get a little help from Bible scholars, Bible teachers, pastors, and such. And there are a lot of great ones out there, some really awesome teachers who've been planted on this earth by God himself to aid us in our understanding of his word. But for every gifted teacher that's out there, there are at least a bare minimum of 10 blind guides that have not been planted on this earth by God. And concerning those guys... Jesus just said, let them alone and disregard them. But how do we know the difference between those who've been planted by God and those who've been planted by Satan? Jesus told us in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will. He said, if you abide in my word, in other words, if you stay in there, don't just take a sip once a week, but drink it all the way down and stay in there. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Sometimes, because of things that I've said here on this show in the past, some people get the impression that I'm anti-teacher. But I'm not, folks. How could I be? I mean, that's what I'm doing. But teachers don't take precedence over God's Word. As a matter of fact, there isn't anything that God holds higher than His Word. How high do you suppose God holds His name? I mean, that's pretty high, right? Well, Psalm 138, verse 2 says that God holds his word even higher than his own name. God's word comes first because that's what Jesus told us would set us free and give us the truth. Good teachers can do that too, but you won't know the difference between a good teacher and a blind teacher if you're blind yourself and not abiding in God's word. Something else here about all this business of man-made traditions that cancel out God's word. Most of the time, those traditions are founded on God's word. But then man comes along and adds a bunch of confusion and nonsense to it throughout the centuries so that it almost becomes null and void. They'll quote the passage of scripture to back up their tradition, but when you really look at the tradition carefully and then compare it to the verse they're using to condone it, you'll find that it contradicts. There's several examples of this, but one of the big ones that always pops into my head is Romans chapter 12 verse 2. It says, do not be conformed to this world. And just about every Christian group out there has taken that and come up with their own definitions of what's worldly versus what's godly. And they always quote the first part of that verse, do not be conformed to this world. This is why we do this, that, and the other. One group says you can't drink alcohol. Another group says you can drink alcohol, but you can't get drunk. 
One group says women shouldn't wear anything that makes them look like men because that's worldly. That's the culture. That's not godly. But then they take that and they forbid their women to wear jeans or cut their hair because doing all of that is what the world does. Christian women should look like women, not like men. But then that same group will turn right around and say that they can't wear makeup because makeup is worldly. One group says only godly music should be played in church services. Well, that makes sense. That sounds reasonable. But one group says that means no instruments, only voices. Another group says, yeah, that's a good idea, but let's not do any modern singing. Only operatic classical singing. If you sound like Whitney Houston, you're singing worldly. Another group says voices only is being ridiculous. Get a piano. Get an organ. That's okay. We want to sing in tune, don't we? Everybody says, yeah. But then that group will get upset when a guitar's brought in. Because somehow, pianos and organs are godly, but guitars are worldly. But who's right, folks? Who decides what's worldly and what's godly? Go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and finish the verse in its context. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed. Ooh, wait a minute. I didn't hear about this. Nobody said anything about transformation. They just said, don't be worldly. There's a transformation that takes place? Yes, read the rest of the verse. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you may prove for yourself what is the will of God. Wow. Prove for yourself. That sounds rebellious. That can't be in the Bible. Yes, it is right there in Romans 12, verse two. Paul wrote it himself in the first century. The same verse everybody quotes when they say, don't be worldly. How come they never finish this verse? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's because it might get in the way of their man-made traditions. Hmm. Well, how does that work, folks? What is mind renewal? How do you become transformed by the renewal of your mind? Jesus told us in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, when he said, if you abide in my word. Notice that he didn't say, if you abide in your church. And he also didn't say, if you abide in your traditions. And even more importantly, you notice he didn't say, if you abide in your teachings. Didn't say any of that. He said, if you abide in my word, what I said, what's in the Bible, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. It's amazing to me how many pastors and how many Christians don't really believe this verse. They're scared to death that they're going to choke on the word and somehow get confused. Well, not if Jesus is a truth teller. He told you, not me, not Josh. He told you, Jesus told you that if you abide in his word, you will know the truth. He didn't say you might know it or you might get close to it or you might somewhat get an idea. He said you would know the truth and the truth would set you free. Set you free from what? Well, fill in the blank. Man-made traditions, man-made religious customs, deception, false teaching, self-told lies. Subtle little confusions that are deeply buried and rooted into the back part of your subconscious. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 says that the word of God is alive and full of power, penetrating to the deepest parts of our nature, exposing, sifting, and analyzing the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. No teacher can do that, folks. No pastor can do that. But the word of God can and does. You know how it does it? It's because the Holy Spirit who authored and engineered that text is the same Holy Spirit who has been sealed inside of you, deep where your inner thoughts and emotions are. No teacher or pastor can get that deep inside of you. 
Now, they might occasionally come close if God knows you have a desperate need for some truth and if he knows you're going to be listening to a particular station or sitting in a particular church, and if the pastor or teacher you're listening to is one that God planted, then God might cook up a good sermon for you to reach your heart. But that's occasional, folks, because God might want to talk to somebody else who needs a different message more than you need yours. And of course, pastors and teachers have schedules, so you can't listen to them until they're ready to say something. The Holy Spirit isn't like that. He's always with you, and he's always ready. And folks, let's be honest, we don't remember sermons. Not really, do we? I mean, the heavier the impact the sermon has, the longer lasting our memory is of it, but for the most part, we forget them. But when we are in the Word, the Holy Spirit chisels and carves into our heart what He wants us to know. And the more time we spend in the Word, the deeper He carves, so that nothing or no one can remove that truth. Abiding in God's word does things that cannot be rationally explained. But Jesus told you, if you do that, you are truly his disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Let's get back to Matthew and Mark. Now, folks, (laughs) catch this next interesting little difference between Matthew and Mark. This is no big deal, but uh, these are the kind of neat little things that I noticed that make me laugh. In Mark's report, Mark, who was Peter's secretary, Mark's report says that Jesus' disciples then began to ask Jesus to explain the parable, where he said it's not what goes into the mouth of a man that makes him unclean, but what comes out of the mouth. Mark's report says that Jesus' disciples began to ask him about that parable. And then it says Jesus ripped into them a little bit for not comprehending it. The same things reported in Matthew's account, but in Matthew's version, it clearly says Peter asked Jesus to explain the parable. I laugh at little things like that. When Mark's account came out, the point was made. Mark was Peter's secretary. Peter was one of the disciples and probably spoke in agreement with some of the other disciples who were there by asking Jesus that question. So I imagine Matthew reading Mark's account, since it came out first, where it says the disciples asked Jesus about the parable, Matthew raised an eyebrow. So when Matthew wrote his account, he's like, Peter asked Jesus about the parable. But anyway, Peter said to Jesus, explain this to us. Then Jesus said, are you also unintelligent and dull and without understanding? Are you unable to put things together? Don't you see that whatever goes into the mouth from outside cannot make one unclean since it does not reach the heart, but only the digestive tract and so passes on into the place where discharges are deposited and cast into the drain? Now, folks, we don't notice the significance of that statement, but Mark did, and he put it down. He makes an important observation after this statement. Matthew somehow missed it, or possibly omitted it because he was writing primarily to a Jewish audience. But right after this statement, Mark points out that with that statement, Jesus just abolished the ceremonial distinctions of the Levitical law. Now, health and hygiene is a different matter, but symbolically and spiritually, Levitically, Jesus just declared all food ceremonially clean. Jesus said, whatever goes into the mouth from the outside cannot make one unclean. Folks, that's a bold statement to make because that's what a good third of Leviticus is all about. The foods that make you clean versus the foods that make you unclean. But Jesus here says it doesn't make you unclean since it does not reach the heart, but only the digestive tract, and so passes on into the place where discharges are cast into the drain. But whatever comes out of the mouth, that comes straight from the heart. 
And this is what makes a man unclean, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, such as murder, adultery, sexual vice, theft, false witnessing, slander, irreverent speech, coveting, dangerous and destructive wickedness, deception, unrestrained and indecent conduct, abusive accusations, an envious evil eye, pride and foolishness. All these evil purposes and desires come from within. Now, folks, notice how Jesus ends this. This is serious, but it almost has a funny hint of sarcasm at the end. After this long list, Jesus says, All these evil purposes and desires come from within, and they are what make a man unclean and defile him. But eating with unwashed hands doesn't make him unclean. (laughs) Well, folks, what happened after this is recorded in Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. And Mark chapter 7, verses 24 to 30. And folks, Jesus does something in this next event that's really uncharacteristic for him. It's so uncharacteristic that I don't believe there's any way that any of us can really know what's going on. I've heard many scholars launch into this next scenario with all kinds of eloquent explanations, but I think they're all making shots in the dark. And you'll see what I mean here in a minute. Let's just dive right on in here says, Jesus arose and went away from there to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he went to a house and didn't want anyone to know that he was there, but it wasn't possible for him to be hidden from public notice. And behold, a woman who was a Canaanite from that district, according to Matthew, Mark reports that she was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by nationality. Mark also reports that she came to Jesus because she had heard of him and because her daughter was under the control of an unclean spirit. Matthew reports that she came to Jesus with a loud, troublesome, urgent cry and said, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Hmm, interesting. Not rabbi or teacher or even Jesus, but Lord, son of David. She cries, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is miserably, distressingly, and cruelly possessed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and implored him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. So Jesus answered her and said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. What? He made a detour to Sychar to save the woman at the well. She was a Gentile. Not too long ago, while Jesus was on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, a Gentile woman with an issue of blood intercepted him, and Jesus healed her. Another time, Jesus healed the servant of a Roman centurion. You can't get any more Gentile than that. So what's this all about? There doesn't appear to be anything wrong with her faith. She's not coming to Jesus to get a limb restored or leprosy cured. She's coming to get her daughter delivered from a demon. Only God could do something like that. And she addressed him as Lord, son of David. So what's going on? Let's continue. Jesus said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But then she came and kneeling, worshipped him and kept praying, saying, Lord, help me. Mark reports that she flung herself down at his feet. Wow. How many of you have been so distressed that you felt like you were flinging yourself down at Jesus' feet, saying, Lord, help me? That's what she did. Jesus answered her and said, It's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What? Folks, does that sound like the Jesus we've seen so far? What's going on? 
First he acted as though he was ignoring her. Then he acted as though he couldn't help her because he was here for the house of Israel first. But now he's insulting her. In the midst of her public humility, crying out not for herself, but for her daughter who's possessed by a demon. She's humbling herself before him at his feet, in tears, addressing him as Lord, not making any demands, but begging in tears. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Please, Lord, help me. And with that, he insults her. It's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, folks, if you're alone in your room reading this passage, when you get to this verse and read it, it's a real shock to hear that kind of talk coming from Jesus, especially when you consider who he's talking to and the circumstances involved. But just when you thought this strange report couldn't get any weirder, we read her response. And it's nothing like what you or I would think her response would be. Jesus just insulted her, said it's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. In response, she says, yes, Lord, and yet even little pups can eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. Huh? Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Because of this saying, you may go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter permanently. And her daughter was cured at that moment, so the woman went home and found her child thrown on the couch, and the demon was gone. Folks, do you see what I mean about this weird story? Now, I've read and heard all kinds of scholarly explanations on this, but none that I've found are all that concrete. In my opinion, they're just really good guesses as to what's really going on. I've got my own view concerning what's happening here, but it also is just a guess. So let me tell you what everybody else thinks, and then I'll tell you what I think, but we're all just guessing. So take all of this for what it's worth and then make up your own minds. The first explanation for Jesus' attitude that you'll find in most commentaries is that Jesus was adhering to his mission, that he was sent to Israel first. And that's true. But Jesus has already bent those rules several times, so why bring it up now? The Roman centurion, the woman on the way to Jairus' daughter, and the woman at the well, they were all Gentiles. And how long did it take Jesus to heal the girl? One-thirtieth of a second? It's not like it slowed him down. The next explanation for Jesus' attitude that you'll find in most commentaries is that Jesus was testing her humility. But that theory doesn't make too much sense for two reasons. Reason number one, he's never done that to anyone else up until here. And reason number two, her humility was on the floor before he said a word to her. The third theory that makes a little more sense to me is that it's possible that Jesus wasn't testing her humility, but testing her persistence of faith specifically testing her faith in his goodness, in who he was. In other words, if you really believe in my love for you and your daughter, if you really believe that I'm the son of David, like you said, then you'll be persistent in your request, regardless of what I say. Because the son of David would certainly heal your daughter. But do you really believe that's who I am? That's an interesting theory, and if that's what's going on, she passed with flying colors, because instead of arguing with Jesus or merely repeating herself or giving up, She actually took Jesus' own words and used them to logically continue her plea. When he said it's not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, she didn't get insulted. She didn't try to convince him that they were more than dogs and somehow worthy of his help. She didn't do that. She said, yes, Lord. In other words, you're God. If you say we're dogs, then we're dogs. You're right. 
It is unfair to take what belongs to the children of Israel and give it to the dogs that make up the rest of us. You're right, Lord, but even little pups can eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. So if Jesus was testing her persistence of faith in his goodness, she passed with flying colors. And that theory makes more sense than any of the other theories that I've ever heard. But let's be honest, folks, there's no proof of any of this. It's just another good guess that might match up with what happened here. But let me tell you what I think. I don't think what really happened here is knowable. I believe that what Jesus said to this woman and what she said in response is based on an inside story that only the two of them share. Let me elaborate. Do you remember what happened in John chapter 1 when Nathanael met Jesus? Jesus saw him walking up and said to him, Ah, see, here is a true Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile or deceit. And Nathanael said, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Before you were under the fig tree, I knew you. And with that single statement, Nathanael just exploded and said, Teacher, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. That's what's recorded for us. What we don't have recorded for us is what it was about that statement that proved to Nathanael that Jesus was the son of God. Whatever it was, it must have been intimate, must have been powerful, and very private, but communicated in code. Before you were beneath the fig tree, I saw you. And I'm not sure, folks, but I really think that's the same kind of thing that's going on here between Jesus and this woman. I don't have any proof. I'm just guessing like everybody else. But when I read this, what Jesus said was just totally out of character for him. And yet it didn't slow her down. It slows us down when we read it. It shocks us. We're stunned. But she wouldn't. Let me see if I can explain it to you a different way. Once upon a time, several years ago, I had just gone through a situation that was extremely troubling for me because I had been leaning on several promises that I found throughout the scriptures. I accepted those promises as promises to me because I made sure they were in their context. I couldn't take them out of context. Several years of prayer had gone by and I had laid claim to these particular promises. But as time began to pass, those promises were not being fulfilled, so my faith was being shaken. And then one particular evening, something transpired that really upset me to the extent that I spent hours groaning in prayer. I had a two-hour drive ahead of me, and I was in my truck, and I spent the entire two hours with no radio, nothing but just me groaning to the Lord. I got a few words in, but most of it was groaning, and I mean literal moaning, just going, Oh, Lord. Oh. The pain was so intense, I didn't know what else to do. That's all I could do was make that noise. But at one point in the two hours, I did manage to say to him, Lord, I've spent the past several years leaning on promises from your word. And yet, not only have those promises not been fulfilled, circumstances continue to pile up that make the fulfillment of those promises impossible to be fulfilled. So where is my hope? All I can do is sit here and groan to you, Lord. Are your promises real? That's how low my faith was, folks, to actually say that out loud to God. That's the way I felt. Are your promises real? Well, when I got home, 
I managed to crawl out of my truck, make my way up the stairs, and go into my apartment. I don't remember where I put my keys or anything. I just remember somehow crawling into my chair, grabbing my Bible, and just started to read. And I thought, where am I going to read? I don't know where to read. I just started in Psalms. Because I thought, you know, when you feel like this, the best place to go is the book of Psalms. And I started reading, and I just kept reading. And by the time I got to Psalm 12, my reading had become almost mechanical. It was as though I was in autopilot, not really absorbing what I was reading. But something caught my eye in verse 5, because the word groans was in it. It said, Now will I arise, says the Lord, because the poor are oppressed, because of the groans of the needy, I will set him in safety, and in the salvation for which he pants. Now, when I read that, I didn't consider myself poor or needy or oppressed. But the word groans stuck out so that it shifted my mind out of autopilot and I started paying attention to the text. And the very next verse, folks, the very next verse says, The words and promises of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace purified seven times over. It was as though God himself was specifically responding to what I had said in my truck. Don't ever doubt my promises. The words and promises of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times over. And I've never forgotten that. That was a supernatural moment, intimacy with the Lord through his word. That's a true story, but what I just told you took place in the 21st century. What if I had been alive in the first century before Jesus began his ministry and asking that same question and read that verse after groaning? And then one day I hear of Jesus coming through my town and I had another problem. Let's go ahead and say I was like the woman. Let's say I was married and had kids and I had a daughter who was possessed by a demon. Well, naturally I would run up to him, but for some reason he's ignoring me. So I fall down on the floor and worship his feet and say, please, Lord, help me. My daughter's possessed. What if Jesus turned to me and said, why should I answer promises given to the groans of the needy? The moment he would ask me that, I would know to say, because the promises of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times over. To which then he would smile and say, Get up, son. Great is your faith. Because of this saying, you may go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter permanently. Folks, all of this is just conjecture, but I offer that to you as a possible explanation for what just happened here. Because after all of the thorough research that scholars have done for 2,000 years to explain this passage, none of it has ever satisfied me because it's not concrete. They might be right. But I can't help but wonder if what this is all about is something intimate that only the Lord and that woman understood. I think we're going to stop right there for now, folks. Next time, we'll continue right where we left off. Until then, we're out of here. Take care.